Today's reading is from Psalm 128 on page 968 of the Black Church Bibles. Blessed are all who fear in the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperities will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. All right, well, it's uh, lovely to be with you again uh, for this third and final week in the Psalms. I'll ask you please to take out the little handout that you're given as you came in. You'll see the Bible passage printed there, an outline on the back of what I'm going to speak about, and it'll be useful to have that in front of you. Um, Obviously, uh, we're just making our way through three Psalms, 126 two weeks ago, 127 last week, and, and clearly 128 this week. Um, I'm going to hop straight into it because I'm going to follow the same pattern as I've tried to over the last three weeks. I'm going to get us to reflect for a few minutes on what the psalm tells us about what God is like, that being what I think is the key to the psalms, uh, and then from there to see how it points us towards Jesus, who is the fullest revelation of what God is like, uh, before we conclude with a few reflections for us today. So, same pattern as before, you can see what we're going to be moving along, and as I said, on the back of the leaflet, you'll see an outline that should help make sense of that. Well, it's a song of ascents again. So you remember the songs of ascents, uh, the things that Israel, the songs that Israel sang as they made their way up the hill, up to the temple to meet with the Lord. Uh, and once again, this psalm is a very short psalm uh, that's in two parts. And you'll see from the outline actually that I've headed the two parts, blessing and benediction. So let's start with the first part, with the blessing of verses one through four. Let me read it again. Psalm 128, verse one. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine around within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the one who fears the Lord. Uh, well, not hard to work out what at least the first part of the psalm is about. It's a wonderful picture of how God blesses his people. You recall last week in Psalm 127, uh, that focused on the delights of having uh, lots of kids, a quiver full of children, uh, was the image that was used. Psalm 128, I think, builds on that image and takes it even further. Uh, it's a lovely picture here of rural life, of enjoying the uh, wonder of a bumper harvest and of doing so in the company of loved ones and a family. Now look at verse 2. You will eat the fruit of your labour. You will eat the fruit of your labour. It's worth us remembering that, of course, in the ancient world, there were so many hindrances to agriculture. Uh, in many ways, it's no different today. Uh, there was drought or flood. Uh, there was pestilence in particular. Uh, you can't help but read, uh, notice as you read the Old Testament, the biblical locust plagues that we don't see quite as much today thanks to pesticides, but were nevertheless a major problem back then. There was always the threat of marauding raiders, of those who would sweep in at the last minute to take what you had so lovingly tended before you could enjoy it. So how reassuring then that Psalm 128 insists you will reap what you sow, your labour will not be in vain, uh, to use the phrase from 127. And that metaphor actually goes on. It's used to describe the abundant company with whom you will enjoy all of this produce. Verse 3. 
Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. I think the key, actually, to these images are those words uh, within your house and around your table. Uh, And so, actually, as I read this psalm and as I thought about it and reflected on it, uh, what I imagined was, just go with me on this, I imagined a Tuscan villa. No, a noisy birthday celebration taking place. There's food and drink flowing freely. There's raucous laughter filling the air. There are children running amok. All of us surely have similar memories, despite whatever our culture is. Now, that's, of course, my confession that this week, the picture that's printed there on your handout... Well, it's a picture of Villa San Barrio. I wasted a lot of time on Airbnb this week. Uh, I'm never going to go there, but that was what brought it to life for me. Psalm 128's wonderful picture of God's blessing enjoyed in family. Of course, the big question that Psalm 128 raises, although it doesn't directly answer, is who gets this blessing? Who is entitled to it? How do you find it if you don't have it? Well, verse 4 tries to explain. Verse 4, yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. This will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. Now, I want to acknowledge, of course, that to speak of fearing the Lord actually sounds pretty ominous. In fact, it sounds nothing like the Tuscan villa, the picture of which I've put there for you, does it? Most of us, when we see those words, fear the Lord, what we think is cowering in fear of being afraid or terrified. We imagine that we have been hauled before a holy and transcendent deity. And of course, the experience couldn't be further removed from the delight of verses 1 through 3 at that point. Sometimes that is the right response before God those moments when we're struck by the magnitude of our sin, when we are, we ought be nervous, even afraid of being held to account for our wrongdoing. But I think in Psalm 128, the meaning of fear is actually much less confrontational. I say that because of verse 1. Go back to how the psalm begins. Blessed are all who fear the Lord who walk in obedience to him. I think actually what the psalm is saying is that fearing the Lord and walking in obedience to the Lord, they are in a sense one and the same. Now again, I'm not, I'm not naive. I realise that at one level to talk about walking in obedience to God doesn't sound that much more appealing. Uh, we Australians, we rile against talk of obedience because, well, that feels like another example of religion trying to control me. It sounds like rules and regulations that I'm going to be forced to keep. And again, that sounds like a long way from the beautiful picture of the Tuscan villa. It's particularly tricky for us Australians because we have a wickedly anti-authoritarian streak, perhaps something to do about our convict past. I've said over the last few weeks that I work with students with university students, and they in particular are especially against rules and regulations, probably because for the first time in their life as adults, 
Uh, they're embracing a freedom from parents and teachers, although interestingly don't always know what to do with it. seems to me that if you look at Psalm 128 it's in, in its entirety, and it doesn't take very long, there's only six verses, right? I've done us a favour, I've picked short psalms for each of these three weeks. If you look at it in its entirety, actually the emphasis is much less on us being, to quote a famous 19th century sermon title from Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. The emphasis is much more on a generous God who longs to bless us. After all, our God made us. He made us and he put us in a world which was meant to be quite literally a garden paradise. And that means, I think, that if you live in obedience to him, if you walk in obedience to your maker, if you live the way our maker made us, you have nothing to be afraid of. In fact, you have only the goodness and delight to look forward to. Remember that, ultimately, Psalm 128 speaks of God's character. And that means that even if our present experience is far from removed from this picture, and sometimes it is, we're meant to see what our giving God is like at heart. And so I think when you remember that Psalm 128 was, well, a song of ascent, I think the first and most basic meaning of walk in obedience literally means walk to him, come to him, return to him if need be. For this is a God who longs to bless. Well, if the first part of the psalm, verses 1 through 4, describe God's blessing, the second part pronounces the benediction. Uh, benediction, uh, just a fancy word if you're not familiar with it, it just really means best wishes. It's what you say to people as you part ways, you want the best for them. So let me read then the benediction that follows on from the blessing. Verse 4, sorry, verse 5. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. Now notice, if you will, the repeated vocabulary of prosperity and family, of children's children. In the two parts of the psalm, I think, the songwriter is saying, may God bless you with prosperity and progeny. May God bless you with fortune and family. May God bless you with great success and grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren. And the thing is that even though Psalm 128 is a song of the Jews whose existence hundreds of years before Christ seems impossibly far removed from ours today, this desire, this desire for prosperity and family, this is universal. This desire is transcultural. This is a longing that we all feel. I've been married for a little over 20 years. Uh, when we first got married, within the first couple of months, uh, my wife and I went round to my grandparents' place uh, to have lunch one day. Uh, my wife is Caucasian. And uh, we turn up at lunch, and even before we come in the front door, my grandfather, elderly Chinese man, says to my new bride of only several months, says, 
Uh, Wendy, I want two great-grandsons quickly. (laughs) She, of course, says, why two? To which he says, in case something happens to the first one. (laughs) A lot of pressure there. This desire for not just good things, but people to enjoy them with. That's something that God has imprinted in every one of us. Notice, however, that part two does introduce two additional elements to God's blessing. Firstly, in verse 5, it specifically says the blessing is from Zion. From Zion. Zion is just another word for Jerusalem. It's a reminder that for us, the prosperity of the Jews in the Old Testament was tied to Jerusalem, to the city of David, the city of God. I think more broadly the principle that we're being reminded of is that whatever blessing God grants, it's on his terms, not ours. Psalm 128 is about God's generous blessing that is his prerogative to give, not our entitlement to demand. And the second thing to notice from verses 5 and 6 is that in verse 6 it concludes... May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. Peace be on Israel. It doesn't say peace be on you individually. It says peace be on Israel. That is, God's blessing is not just individual. It is corporate. In fact, in the Old Testament, it is national. Remember how I said that these songs of ascents were what the Jews were to sing as they made their way up the hill to meet with God in the temple? The songs of ascents are for God's people to sing as they go to meet their God. And that means, of course, that over these last three weeks when I've been saying to you that the parallel for us is of, uh, you know, songs of ascents, they're like the playlist that you listen to on your way to church. Uh, I hope you can see that even saying that, that's too individualistic. Rather, you might have a different image in your mind as you read the Songs of Ascents. You might think of, and again, run with this illustration if you will for a minute, you might think of a church bus that leaves every Sunday morning and drives around to everybody's house and gathers all the families together to bring us all to church together. And as the bus pulls up outside your house and you go to get on with your family, well, what you discover as you enter in is that everybody is already singing. And you join in raucously as one, as the whole family of God comes to meet with our Maker. Yeah, it's really significant if you think about it. It's significant because sometimes you won't feel like singing. There are some days where it will be hard for you to raise your voice in praise. Your circumstances of the week gone by might mean that actually singing praise to God is the last thing in your heart. That's okay. As you get on the bus, sometimes others will sing it for you just for a season, on your behalf. And sometimes the blessings of Psalm 128 are not forthcoming in your life. 
So what do you do then? Well, let's come to point two then. How does Psalm 128 point us to Jesus? The usual way in which we Christians reflect on Old Testament passages like Psalm 128 is to focus on the spiritual blessings that Jesus brings us which far far exceed the good things even of this world that Psalm 128 describes. That's, of course, exactly what Mike did for us this morning in that wonderful kids' talk. He's taken the passage from Ephesians 1, which I printed here conveniently on your handout. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is a critical passage for us as Christians. The Jews never had this, but we do. It tells us that God's blessings in Psalm 128, which in the Old Testament they are anchored in Jerusalem, now these blessings are available to all believers everywhere, to everyone who is in Christ. And that's wonderful news, because we don't live in Israel. We are not the Old Testament people of God. This is how we are part of God's great blessing. But actually, I want to do something slightly different today in showing how Psalm 128 points us to Jesus. I don't want to focus on the spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly realms that we have, important though they are. Instead, I want to pick up the corporate dimension of Psalm 128, the fact that it's a song for all God's people to sing together, not just you and I on our own. The way I want to do that is to draw our attention to Mark chapter 10. Because I think this is one of the key passages that shows us what Jesus offers to all believers collectively, both in this life, but also in the one to come. So have a look with me at Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Again, printed on your handout. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 29. Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or fields for me and the gospel, will fail to receive, notice there's two parts, a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now my observation is that when we Christians read passages like Mark 10, we tend to focus on the end of what Jesus is promising there. In the age to come, eternal life. That's the reward for following Jesus in the here and now. In fact, we can be so focused on that that sometimes we can ignore everything in between. As if, well, to be a Christian means you put up with lots of hardship now. Why? because you have a hope, even a guarantee, of reward in heaven. You ever heard that kind of sentiment? Of course you have. It is what um, one of our Bible college lecturers used to remind us. It's the sentiment that Christianity is all about pie in the sky when you die. And nothing in between. Now, I understand why we often focus on that. I mean, it's magnificent, isn't it? And it enables us to avoid the opposite wrong extreme, 
This is the extreme that, sadly, wrongly, sometimes Christians insist that we should expect that Jesus rewards us in the here and now, that we ought to have healthy and wealthy lives, to use the phrase that Mike did before. This is sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel. We picked up on it a little in question time last week. I trust you can see how problematic any such teaching is when so many believers in the global south have nothing in this world, or nothing of material benefit anyway. But did you notice that Jesus does have something for the here and now? It's not just pie in the sky when you die, the same Bible college lecturer, he wasn't particularly funny, he was a dad, so he had a lot of da- bad dad jokes. He said, there's also steak on your plate while you wait. <laughs> so bad that I've never forgotten it. <laughs> but did you notice Jesus has something else on offer? Verse 29, no one who leaves home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecution. Jesus does guarantee one blessing in the here and now. He says, to all who leave unbelieving families to follow him, they will gain a hundred times as much family in this life. It won't be biological. It's the spiritual family that Jesus is promising to all who come after him. Now, clearly it's not all plain sailing, right? Do you notice what Jesus qualified that promise with? Verse 30, along with persecutions. There is a great cost in following Christ. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that the one blessing that Jesus guarantees every believer is the delight of community, of belonging, of being, if I can draw the contrast, not just the member of a club, but of being family and kin, of being flesh and blood with other believers. And this, this promise applies no matter how financially prosperous or successful you might be. I want to ask you today, isn't that what makes life bearable? It doesn't matter whether you're filthy rich or dirt poor. What you notice in the end is if you have people to share it with. Jesus is saying that in Christ's plan of salvation, he is saving a people for himself, not just a bunch of individual persons. Well, what Psalm 128 says about God, how it points us towards Jesus, let me finish then by asking, uh, what, does it say, what does it ask of us today? And today, I'm simply going to finish with one question. You'll see it printed there at the bottom of your handout. Here's the question. How will others want what we've got? How will others want what we've got? 
What I find really interesting about Psalm 128 is that even though it talks about fear, it is almost entirely positive, isn't it? Almost every aspect of the six verses is wonderfully uplifting because it's painting a picture of a God who is so incredibly good to us. And that causes me to wonder, why is it that Christians are so often downcast, so discontent? I find myself wondering why Christians are so often glass-half-empty pessimists with long, scowling faces. Why is it that we so often find ourselves dwelling on what we don't have rather than focus on what God has given us in such abundance? Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that Christians should pretend that hardship doesn't affect us or that it's not real. I mean, Christ did warn of persecutions, right? I'm not saying that we should just float around from day to day in a little bubble of Walt Disney happiness. You know, as if that kind of sugary, uh, giggly sweetness might somehow be appealing to those around us. In fact, I think it's critical that we speak of failure and of brokenness, of sin and of wrongdoing, of ours, first and foremost. And I think we ought to do so, if for no other reason than that our friends and our colleagues who live in such an incredibly wonderful place like Adelaide, they will have no reason otherwise to consider Christ. But I am saying that surely our lives ought to look different from those around us. Because in Christ, we have blessing both now and in the future, and it's guaranteed. It's secured by his own death and resurrection. And it seems to me that if that shapes our lives, then others will see it and others will want that for themselves. They should want the kind of hope that only Christ can bring. I think that kind of difference ought to be apparent in how we live. I often tell our students when I work with them that, in fact, the best time for evangelism is SWATVAC. Because in SWATVAC, their lives ought to look different from their classmates around them. I mean, surely, exams, yes, they can be stressful, But if you're you're an unbeliever facing exams, you only have yourself to depend on. No wonder you worry. We Christians ought to look different. Year round, in the way in which we confront hardship, at work, in sickness, through conflict, our lives ought to look different because of how good God has been to us. One of the really lovely things about our students this year is that um, I spoke last week about Jesus Week. I didn't tell you what the theme was. Let me show you what they came up with. Um, Every year they wear jumpers because it's an easy way to do advertising. 150 students wearing the same jumper for two weeks both attracts, well, smell, but (laughs) it also attracts attention. Here's what they came up with this year. Students came up with, their topic was, I find hope in. I find hope in. I lost track of the number of times in which students came up to tell me that 
Actually, by wearing the jumper, one of their classmates, someone would ask them, what is your hope in? Here's my final suggestion then for this talk. And in fact, my final suggestion for this series. I want to pick up on the idea of the blessing that has been, I think, anticipated in Psalm 128 and fulfilled in Jesus, this idea of a community of corporate blessing. And I want to finish by suggesting, encouraging you, what opportunity do you have to invite your workmates, your neighbours, your friends, your classmates, what opportunity do you have to invite them to come and see the wonderful blessing of life in the Christian community? There's all sorts of ways you can do it. Sometimes you might invite them to, I guess, a formal gathering, like a Sunday morning at 10am. Come and see a glimpse of what it means to be part of this community. Maybe it's one of the special events that uh, this church runs, like a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Nailed at Night. But, you know, you don't need to wait for a formal opportunity. I think one of the most powerful things that we can do is invite our friends who aren't Christian to meet our friends who are. To see something of the spiritual family that we belong to. To see what a great blessing it is and perhaps to want that for themselves. Because it seems to me that if they see what we have now and how thankful we are for it, perhaps we'll have a chance to speak of the even greater hope that we have because in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. What this community is in the end is just a glimpse a foretaste, a teaser trailer of what we will have in eternity when we join with people from every nation, every language, every tribe and every tongue to worship the Lord Jesus. Let me finish just by reading for us from Revelation chapter 7 and then I'll pray. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people and language, all standing before the throne and worshipping the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. And they said, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, well, sir, you know. So he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the lamb. 
Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day when we're with him, which will be better by far. In the meantime, we thank you that he is with us to the ends of the earth. And we thank you for the gift of being part of his family, that we're united to brothers and sisters, both here and throughout your world, all seeking to give praise to you. Amen. Um, yeah, happy to take questions from the floor, um, as we have in previous weeks. Uh, a couple on the mobile. Um, what's the difference meant um, between a people and individual people? Uh, I, I, sorry, I haven't, I'm not quite sure what that means, but let me tell you what I... I'll answer what I think it means. Um, Oftentimes when we read the Bible, we rightly read ourselves into it as individuals. Uh, That's a good thing, right? Um, Because the Bible speaks to us uh, in our circumstances, in our situation. Um, Perhaps the challenge that we have uh, in the individualistic West is that we kind of tend to think that most things are about us and uh, are about me rather than about us. And so the first thing we need to know when we read the Bible is that um, God is calling for himself a people not just an individual or even a collection of individuals, but rather, uh, you know, to use the language, um, an entire nation for himself. Um, that's why Israel in the Old Testament is meant to be a picture of what God is doing uh, for all peoples. Um, and when you have that in mind, it helps you to think carefully about what you're reading when you read it in the Bible. So, for example, Psalm 128, as I tried to say, it is something that we can sing individually, individually, but I actually think it's something that's meant to be sung by the whole collection of God's people. Um, I'll give you a slightly different illustration. Um, in only one place in the Bible does it say that Jesus died for me. Uh, that's in Galatians 2, verse 20 or 21. 2, verse 21, I think. It's the only place in the whole Bible where it says Jesus died for me. In every other reference in the New Testament, it's Jesus died for us or for his people. Um, so it's just... Uh, what I'm trying to do is help us remember that when you read the Bible, you need to read it as a member of a community, not just on your own. Okay? So that's what I'd say about that. Does anyone want to come back on that if I haven't answered the question that you're asking anyway? No? I'll blame it on autocorrect otherwise. Because um, I can't quite follow it here. Here's a, a different question, which is really helpful. Um, what does it mean for us to proactively leave um, non-Christian family for the sake of Jesus? Uh, does that bring more blessing to us if we leave them behind uh, or not? I thank you to the person who's asked that. Um, look, I want to be careful here. I don't think that Jesus is saying in Mark, in Mark chapter 10, that to be a believer means you have to leave behind your family. Um, what I think he's trying to say is that you must be prepared to leave anything to follow him if that's necessary. 
Uh, so if I put it in those terms, you can think of all the other things that it's quite clear in the gospel you must be prepared to leave behind to follow Jesus. The most obvious one is riches uh, for the rich young ruler in Mark chapter something, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, you know the story there. Um, so I think what's happening in Mark 10 is that Jesus is both highlighting the cost, that is being willing to leave family uh, who aren't believers, um, but at the same time, the promise or the blessing that is of being part of a family, a spiritual family, that it doesn't quite compensate, that's the wrong language to use, but is reminded that you will not be alone. Uh, So, um, in what circumstances would you leave behind a family who aren't Christian? Uh, This probably isn't the situation for us here, uh, but if you've ever met a Persian believer, uh, for them it actually means... Uh, for some, it means to leave behind their family lest they be uh, actually uh, killed by family members for renouncing Islam. But that's a very explicit and, I guess, um, clear situation. If I give a different example, and uh, it pales in comparison, um, I talked about how uh, my wife was required to produce great-grandchildren quickly. Um, I'm the only son of the only son of the only son, and... When we finished at Moore College uh, some 16 years ago uh, to start in ministry, there was an option either to stay in Sydney or to move here. Uh, for us, that meant, um, though there was significant expectation that we would stay in Sydney, uh, for us, that meant actually being prepared to leave. Um, now, as I said, that's nothing compared to the example of the Persian believer, right? I'm not equating that in any way. But we did move from a place where all of our extended family was on both sides to a place where... Um, the only people I knew here were Paul Harrington because he'd interviewed me and offered me a job uh, and the girl in my year at Moore College who had spent four years saying to people, you should all come to Adelaide, but she wanted everyone except for me. So <laughs> we knew no one in Adelaide when we got here. Um, our experience has been having raised all of our children in Adelaide with not a single family mem- biological family member around here uh, that they have very much had a hundred times as much uncles and aunties and grandparents. Uh, And I can think of, I could name them for you, uh, some of whom are in this room today, uh, who have loved them in the way in which their biological family might have. Now, you hear what I, my my hesitation in giving my own example, right? It's not prescriptive. It's not even as significant as what others have done. But for us, at least in our life, that's been a very small insight into what I think Jesus is talking about in Mark 10. There is a cost in following Christ, there is the promise of a great eternal reward that we must never lose sight of, but there is also something in the here and now. And that thing, I think, is the blessing of being part of a community, a people, a family, whatever language you want to use. Um, Yeah, so that's what I'd say about that. I've run out of questions on this. Questions before? Pans, thanks. Yep. Yes. Um, so the passage also like, mentions homes and fields. Thank you. Our pans always into real estate. Um, yeah, good question. Um, I did gloss over that, so thank you for picking me up. Uh, so if you have a look at the verse there, Jesus says, No one who has left home, brothers, sisters, father, mother, father, children, or fields for me 
will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. What, what does the, um, what is Jesus describing? Um, so, let me, here's how I want to answer that. First is, you hear my hesitation about saying anything which says, if you become a Christian, you'll get lots of material blessing. Right? You've heard that concern throughout this whole series, and there's a million ways in which I could address that. But the only way in which I've chosen to do so is to say that at least observationally that is patently not true. It might be for us in 21st century Adelaide, but across time and space uh, for 2,000 years, most Christians have had nothing. So if that's what Jesus is promising, I've got to say he's not very good at keeping his promises, which means I think that's not what he's actually got on view. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing is to say that if you look at what Jesus is speaking about in those verses, I think the emphasis is on relationship. Um, even home, uh, well, he's not saying real estate asset. He's saying home, and home, I think, carries that idea of relationship. You can have a house, but if there's no one in it, it's, it's worth nothing to you. Uh, the fields bit, uh, not entirely sure why that's there, um, and I'd encourage you to try and think, what do you think that Jesus is offering and what is he promising? Um, the way I've tried to read it is to say that it's part of, in a sense, the whole package. Um, the emphasis clearly, I think, is on relationship, and that's the bit that I think is uncontested. So uh, there's not without... There's more discussion that could be had, but I think the overwhelming weight of what's taking place in those verses is to describe if you're concerned that you lose, you leave relationship and you'll be alone by becoming a follower of Christ, that is not the case. So that's how I've tried to think about that. But happy to keep chatting about that one more. And it's good that you ask the question of that because you want to come to terms with both Mark 10, 29 to 30, to 30 as well as, this is the hard part, right, the whole rest of Scripture at the same time.